Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Aaron Mack. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, our partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, September 17th. On today's show, we'll be talking to Nathan Koka, a journalist who has abstained from using any Google products for over a year. We'll discuss why he did it and what alternatives he used, and whether he thinks that other people can easily do this as well. I'll also ask for his thoughts on how this experiment has formed his thinking about antitrust and big tech. After the interview, my colleague Shannon Paulus will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. It's hard to imagine life without Google. The company, whose parent Alphabet is the fourth largest tech company in the world, seems to be involved in everything we do on the internet. More than 90% of web searches are conducted through Google. And think about Gmail, Gcal, Docs, Drive, Hangouts, Chrome, Maps, Android, YouTube. These services are so popular and intertwined that it might seem impossible to stop using Google products altogether. But journalist Nithin Koka did just that. For more than a year, he's abstained from using anything made by Google to figure out just how hard it is to live outside the company's bubble. Nithin chronicled his journey in two Medium articles. He writes about how it took him six months to find alternative services and finally close his Gmail account, and about the sacrifices and surprising benefits of freeing yourself from Google. Now that proposals to break up big tech have entered mainstream discourse and even become a hot topic in the 2020 presidential race, Nithin's experiment is an interesting look into the debate. Nithin, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So where did you first get your idea to abstain from Google? Yeah, it, it just came kind of organically. So I had been using Google. I was one of, the, one of the first people that joined Gmail when it was still invite only for more than 10 years. And I just kind of gradually, I noticed like Google had taken over my life about two years, about two years ago. So I think the discussion about monopolies and kind of the growing control of Google, Facebook, and some of the other tech giants was starting to become like a bigger issue, especially among people in the privacy and security communities. And so I thought it just kind of came up like I quit Facebook a couple of years earlier. It was very easy. You just close your account and you're gone. But I thought like quitting Google is a much different kind of beast because they're like, like you mentioned, there's so many Google services we rely upon on so many different sectors. So I just wanted to kind of make it an experiment to see like how difficult would it actually be to do what I did with Facebook with Google. And the second part was like, I'd found a lot of guides and kind of tutorials on how to do it, but they were very, very tech focused. They're for people who are programmers or very, very deep into the open source community. And I wanted to take it from more like a consumer perspective, like someone who knows a little bit about technology, but doesn't know how me to actually like set up an alternative Google free life. So were you usually, were you um, using mostly Google services before you decided to quit? I was, yeah. I think Gmail was my primary email. I just kind of defaulted to Google search. I had an Android phone. Google Docs was like where I kept most of my kind of important organizi- organizing spreadsheets and pitch documents and 
uh, even collaborative work stuff. So yeah, I was I had several several gigabytes of data uh, on Google. And so what kind of rules did you set for yourself for this experiment? Um, were there any shortcuts or loopholes you wanted to avoid? Like, were you okay using another big company services? Yeah, I, I wanted to try, well, I'd set some guidelines. I wanted to like focus on privacy-centric alternatives, and I wanted to as much as possible kind of control my own data with the caveat like that I'm not a programmer and I didn't want to spend a lot of time setting up something that was overly complicated. So I've, I avoided using tools from any other, I didn't want to switch to like Microsoft or Apple as an alternative. So I did try to find kind of smaller privacy-oriented companies or open source alternatives as much as possible. So you mentioned privacy. Were there any other criteria that you were using when you were trying to searching for these alternatives? Well, the most important thing for me was usability. Like I didn't want to sacrifice very much in terms of functionality. A lot of the initial ones I tested were just too user-unfriendly or required you to kind of understand how to use a programming language or understand how to connect things on backends, which I wasn't, which was just too much of a time suck for me. So I wanted to, I wanted to like get as much of the user experience I was getting with Google, which was for the most part pretty good with these alternatives as possible. And I guess what were you trying to achieve by doing this? Why do this extremely inconvenient thing? Were you something, was this something you're trying to prove or was this a personal kind of quest? It started as like a personal quest because I just wanted to see how difficult it would be. And it kind of turned into something bigger because once I realized how hard it was, it brought up this bigger question that why should it, why is it so difficult to quit using the tools of one private company online? And what does that say about the state of the internet? So it turned into like a much larger like discussion about just just how much control Google has over like our our digital lives and how much our, how reliant we become on this one company. So much to the point that it like to quit takes several months of dedicated work and transition, which doesn't sound to me like a free market, doesn't sound to me like like you really have a choice in the matter. So I want to do kind of a lightning round just so listeners can get an idea of the services you used. So I'll name the Google service and you name the alternative you found. Google search. DuckDuckGo and uh, StartPage. Gmail. Uh, ProtonMail. Chrome. Mozilla Firefox. Google Calendar. Uh, using FastMail Calendar. Google Docs and Drive. NextCloud. Google Maps. Maps.me and here. Hangouts. Jitsi Meet and Signal. Analytics. Uh, I'm using Peewick, which they changed the name of Matomo. And then Android. Uh, I'm using Lineage, which is technically Android fork, but it's like kind of an open source alternative Android, but it's still based on Android, unfortunately. Okay, so out of all those, what was the easiest to find and what was the hardest to find? The easiest was ProtonMail. It was designed, I think, for designed for people like me and mine, for general specifically, and people who their work required them to take privacy seriously and be concerned about the data that they had on their emails, but wanted like functionality of Google, of Gmail. So it's very similar to Gmail. Because I have my own domain, like switching the email itself was not as big of a hassle as it could have been. It still was a hassle because some stuff was connected to my Gmail, but I could just shift my domain to ProtonMail very easily. And the most difficult, which was really surprising to me, was finding an alternative to Google Calendar. Um, they're just like weren't very many out there. And the ones that were the ones I tested, I think I tested like six or seven, just were really terrible. One of them like didn't have time zone functionality. I recall oh. like it was just like they were missing these simple things. And finally I I found out I didn't even it was recommended Fastmail as an email alternative, for which it was good, but I found out they have a really good calendar tool built in. So I'm actually paying for Fastmail as a second email slash calendar tool. Um, it's the closest I found, but it's still not 
quite as good as Google Calendar. And then I guess another, I still haven't really found a good alternative to Google Docs. Like I found Nextcloud and Nextcloud Notes does enough, but I can't get the rich editing features of Google Docs without like having a dedicated server or like much more expensive infrastructure. So were any of these services actually better than what Google offers? I mean, you mentioned a lot of flaws in your alternatives. Were there any that seemed superior? Yeah. um, Well, Maps.me, I remember when I was using it in Indonesia, I found out that it actually had better, had all these walking trails on the platform that weren't on Google Maps. And I actually could find better paths for pedestrians than I could on Google Maps. So I was surprised that like some of them all alternative mapping tool was in fact better. I think, yeah, like using Nextcloud instead of Google Drive, I can actually send people, if I need to share a file, I can send people like an individual password protected file with access for a short amount of time. So it has a little, it has the sharing functionality actually, you can, it's a little more adaptable and you can personalize a little more, more than Google Drive where you kind of get the one size fits all. And then I think in like, now that I've been using ProtonMail, I, I know that a few months ago, Google stopped using their inbox function or their inbox tool. They closed it. I've just noticed that like every time ProtonMail makes an improvement, it seems to be one that's actually designed for users. And I feel like with Google in the past, when they were making improvements, it was designed more for their needs. I think for their data gathering or their advertising needs, they weren't necessarily making improvements for you with users in mind. So I've noticed these tools are actually, a lot of times they're getting better because they're actually taking in my input and taking our user input. And that's kind of refreshing after so many years of kind of just getting what Google wanted to give you. You just mentioned Google Maps, and I thought it was interesting that you wrote about how the alternatives seem to work better in certain countries and not in others. Uh, what did you see there? Yeah, so I think I mentioned just now, like Maps.me really functioned well in Indonesia. But I recall like when I went to, initially I was using here, and when I went to Japan, I found that they didn't have any maps for the whole country. So I had to kind of go back to Google Maps initially and then use Maps.me sometimes. It's interesting because I think these projects start up in certain countries and they kind of expand slowly to different regions, but there's nothing that's quite global in the same way Google is. So I do have to kind of use, you know, two different map apps to kind of, as someone who travels a lot, to kind of function in different parts of the world. Even with messaging apps, like in some parts, though, everyone, WhatsApp is huge everywhere and Google Hangouts is pretty common. Um, But I know like some places people use Telegram and some places people use Signal and some places people use Line. You kind of have to be multi-platform to get away from the ubiquity of Google sometimes. So Kashmir Hill uh, did a similar sort of thing for Gizmodo where she was abstaining from Google and she found that she was unable to use Uber or Lyft without Google Maps. Uh, have you found the same thing or anything where an app wouldn't work because it was relied on a Google service? One issue I run into a few times is when people send me links to Google. So like people will often say, like, let's meet here and they'll send me a Google Map link. And if I open up the map link, it'll sometimes open on the browser, but sometimes it'll open in whatever language I happen to be in or what country I'm in. So I, when I was in Hong Kong, it just opens up the link in Cantonese or traditional Chinese, and I can't read anything. And there's no way to switch the language on there. So that's one issue I've come into where Google, if you're not, I, I was quite surprised to find if you don't have a Google account, you can't change the language on Google. The only way you can change the language is by logging in and shifting and changing the language. So I do have... I guess when I'm using some apps, I still do have G apps on my phone lineage. So it does, I guess, occasionally get Google data. So I haven't gone to the same level that Kashmir Hill went to, as I saw that article as well. And I think that was, she was directly blocking all the Google services. I do that to some extent when I'm browsing, but I don't actively like 
restrict Google from coming to me. So were there any services you simply weren't able to find any alternatives for? You mentioned like Google Doc editing, you're not able to kind of replicate that anywhere else. Are there any other apps that just seemed like Google really has the only thing? I think uh, Android is a big one. There's not really an alternative mobile operating system uh, besides Apple, besides iOS. And even like things like Lineage OS, even though it's an open source project, it's based on Android. Um, and it's still, you still have to end up getting Android apps on there. It comes installed with some Google apps that you can take off. I was hopeful a year ago that some of these open source projects that were kind of in development for mobile alternative operating systems would kind of go somewhere. It doesn't, so far, it doesn't seem like any of them really have. So I think in the mobile space is even, I guess, in many ways worse than the desktops or kind of the internet browsing space because you're really relying on these two companies and they are the gateways to all these apps. And their app stores are almost the only place you can get a lot of these apps. Like I try using... F-Droid, like an alternative app store, F-Droid as much as possible on my phone. But there's not that many apps on there. And sometimes I do have to go into the Google Play to get apps or do it through the Google system. Yeah. So did you find that you were forced a lot to like relapse and use a Google app uh, no matter how limited it was? Yeah, especially on mobile. Um, I think the other example was that as a journalist, a lot of publications I write for, they use Google Docs as their editing platform. So I was forced to kind of open a second, open a dummy Google account just to edit articles that editors have sent me. So a lot of work-related stuff, some companies or some platforms only use Google Apps or Google Suite. So I can't really force them to, to switch um, as a freelancer. So I, I am forced to occasionally go on there and use Google Docs or and with mobile because they're just, if, if I want to have a functioning phone, there's almost no way to have a functioning phone without being on Android. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Nithin Koka. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try, and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool provide options from other companies, all lined up and ready to compare, so it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You mentioned earlier that you were paying for one of your services. So are most of the services you're using now free or have you had to pay a bit more to kind of mimic the same functionality that Google had? Yeah, so I think I'm paying for a handful of services now. And mm -hmm. I accepted that as the fact that Google makes money from my data. If I want right. to be in control of my data, I have to actually pay these services um, to provide the functionality that Google would get from advertising or another uh, however, they use user data. So I think it it was something I did bring up a lot in the piece where it's almost if you want to like be 
if you want to just use free services, there really is no way to replace Google's functionality. You have to pay because there's no way for these providers to provide the same functionality or similar tools without charging users or going the Google model of using your data. So I pay for ProtonMail. I pay for my FastMail calendar. I think I pay for a couple of other services. And of course, I pay for my web server to host NextCloud. It's not an incredibly high cost. I, I, I think it's, it ends up being the same cost of like owning a planner or kind of what I would be doing in the pre-digital age to be organized. Mm -hmm. Paper, planner, kind of those kind of functions, those kind of things. So it's not a huge cost, but it is a cost. And I know not everyone can pay that cost. Right. Do you, would you have an estimate for someone who wants to leave Google, like around how much that would cost to have all the same features? I think I end up paying about one to $200 a year, all my services, including the host hosting. You write at one point that it was especially difficult to transfer and close your Gmail account. Um, can you walk us through what you had to do to finally close it? Yeah, so the issue was not anything to do with Google. It actually was that I had registered my Gmail address with some banks and some other websites. Um, and for some of them, like your email was your unique identifier. So they actually did not have the functionality for you to actually change your email on the back end. So I had to like call in or go through like a very complicated process to actually get the email changed. And sometimes I would actually go through that process and get the email changed and they would still continue sending emails to my old email address because their system wasn't, up, wasn't able to actually process the change. And I realized like it's, par it's partly because people don't change their email addresses anymore. We're we kind of keep the same Google Gmail address for years and years. And I remember like when I was using Hotmail and uh, in the early days, like 15, 20 years ago, like I would change email addresses every six months, and it was, I don't remember that being a hassle because I think it was a lot more common. So I was surprised how like a lot of databases and kind of platforms were just not able to deal with that kind of what I thought would be a simple thing. And it got to the point where some, I think there's still like two or three uh, accounts where I have to use my Gmail as my login, but it'll, they, they, the login is still my old Gmail address, even though it sends emails and finally connects to my new email. Uh, because there was just no way for them to actually change that on their end. So what accounts were the, the hardest to kind of disconnect from that used your Gmail address? They were mostly like s smaller services. So I, I remember mm -hmm. one was like Fast Track, so how you pay the bridge tolls in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, that one was very complicated. Clipper Card, which is like the automatic payment for transit, uh, was really difficult. So things like that, like I think ones that maybe don't have as updated infrastructure, um, one car one uh, car sharing app I use also had a, had problems with that. They actually had to close my account and open a new account because they couldn't oh, wow. actually change my email address. So what happened then when people tried to send you a Google Calendar invite or connect with you over Hangouts or you know send you a Google Map link? I mean, did you have to convince them to do something else or was it most of the work on your end? Yeah, that's a good question. I would try try to play like a middle game where I want to kind of convince push people to give me an alternative, but I don't want to make it annoying. For Hangouts, I would always, I would regularly try to people like, hey, can we use Jitsi Meet or can we use Skype instead? Especially as I found out, even if you don't have a Google account, you have to use Chrome to use Hangouts properly. It doesn't work on Firefox or another browser anymore. And then with, with Maps, like when if I'm in the US, I can at least open it up and take a screenshot and kind of at least get the address down and stick it in my map. Um, when I'm mm -hmm. abroad and I get the link and it shows up in another language I can't read, I need to like ask them, like, please, can you say, just send me the address in text so right. I can look it up myself, it, which should be simple, but sometimes is quite a hassle for people. And then calendar invites, how did you handle that? I would just, uh, it takes a little bit more work, but I had to just manually enter everything into my calendar. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's kind of incredible that there's not like an, a standard kind of calendar API or that you can just link to any calendar in the world, any calendar app. Sometimes calendar invite would come as like an attachment to an email and then I couldn't open that attachment. So I would have to ask them to copy and paste it so I could see it. And then the more complicated thing was like people would sometimes ask me to send them calendar invites because Uh, they rely on the calendar. And then I would have to tell them like, I don't use Google Calendar, so I can't send you an invite, (laughs) but I can send you one on my app. I think there was one instance where the person like ended up not wanting to do the meeting because of that. Uh, Just just pretty shocking. But for most part, people will be flexible if you communicate. Yeah. I mean, did you ever feel like you were burdening or inconveniencing people by, you know, sticking to this no Google policy? Uh, How hard would you push before you, uh, I mean, would you ever relent if someone really needed to use a Google service? Yeah, I guess I get, I rent, I relent with Google Docs with publications. So I don't push Mm -hmm. there. For the most part, like it hasn't been, hasn't been a huge issue because, well, I mean, yeah, besides Google Docs, it hasn't been a huge issue in terms of me having to push back. I think people are pretty open. And I think, especially over the past year, since I quit Google, I think I've noticed more and more people are kind of open to the idea, like these companies have a lot of power and we should maybe consider putting reins on their power or kind of understand their role in society. So I'm seeing a lot more openness to alternatives. People, that article I wrote on Google, it's what's literally amazed me is like how it's sustained readership over one year. And even today I get emails and comments, people asking for advice or people telling me they're also thinking about quitting. So uh-huh. the, I think there is growing awareness of that there's a problem. And I think people are, want solutions, but there's, I think what I wanted to add to the debate was like that there's no easy solution out there. And that's also part of the problem. Right. I mean, do you think the average person is going to be able or motivated enough to do something like this? No. And I don't think so. I don't think it's possible for the average person to quit at this stage. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be that hard for the, someone to quit. Like people should be able to move their data and people should be able to switch services easily. And I think it's kind of, I think it's interesting to see how it's becoming a discussion among the democratic debates. And you're seeing policies out there about regulating big, big tech more. And you're starting to see more government action in Europe and in Japan. So I think there's more realization like consumers can only do so much and actually we can't do that much anymore at this stage. Mm-hmm. So there has to be better regulations. I think that's that's really I think my I think my experience shows that as well. Like I don't I can't expect anyone to take six months to find what find services that they want and still have to kind of suffer a little bit perpetually. I mean so if we were to break up Google, do you think that would address a lot of the issues you ran into while you were trying to quit it? I think breaking it up would address some of the issues. I think what I would like to see more is like um, forced interoperability. It should be easy to move your data from one email service to another. It should be easy to like link my Fastmail calendar with any calendar app out there. Like mm-hmm. things should be able to communicate and be interoperable a lot more, so that switching is no longer a hassle. It's just a click. So I think what I'd like to see is more like open standards between different email platforms and services. I don't want the standard to be Google. The standard should be something um, decided ideally by a third party or by or ideally with privacy and security in mind. Breaking up Google, I think, would have some impact, but if it's just breaking up Google and having like Gmail be a independent email operator, it's not really solving the problem of being of one company kind of dominating email or search. So I'd like, yeah, I'd like to see kind of more, maybe more creative, more. I'd like to see more creative solutions that kind of address some of the core problems that are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that what would really kind of be a big barrier for me to try to do something like this is it's just so convenient to have 
Calendar and Gmail and Drive all in the same place and compatible with one e- with uh, with each other. I mean, mm-hmm. what is it like to have all these disparate apps that might not communicate that well with each other? Yeah, it it, it just means that I'm doing a little, things a lot more manually than probably mm-hmm. you are. So I'm entering everything to my calendar manually. I'm no longer just click yes and accept the event and it shows up automatically. I have to manually enter my contacts. I have to directly spend a little bit of time linking my contacts to my contacts app on my phone. It doesn't sync automatically or initially doesn't sync automatically. If I had a Google account, everything syncs easily. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's just a little more effort at every at every stage. And I understand I'm willing to like put that time in because I like having control of my data, but I can see like what are most people that's not going to be a willing trade-off it's just going to be too much of a hassle but if things were interoperable then you wouldn't have that trade-off so if you could use a different contacts app and it would still link to your gmail you would consider doing that i think more people would be willing to make that transition in that stage at that point okay we're going to take another quick break and then we'll continue our conversation with nithin coca Have there been any benefits in general? Is there anything that's tangibly more convenient or is it just kind of a a higher sense of not being uh, attached to this one company? I think that's a big part of it. I do feel like I know where all my data is now and I have kind of control of it. And it feels very tangible to be able to say like, to be able to like see and kind of keep it in my own space and have control of my own data. As I get a little better with like linking things, I find that I can kind of create kind of functionality and platform, create like an environment for work that's a lot more adaptable to my to my exact needs than I was able to under Google, where I was kind of forced to do things as Google decides. I can organize my next cloud in a way that helps me like function better as a journalist that I couldn't do with Google Drive necessarily. Even though mm-hmm. perhaps with Google Drive, it's, it's connect, more interconnected with all my other apps, I can kind of set up things a little better than I would have otherwise. The main takeaway is like I feel a lot more empowered it fe- I feel better like knowing that my data is in my own hands. Um, I know like now that I've already quit Google, if I want to switch to a new service, it's a lot easier now. I- I've taken that kind of first like step away. If I wanted to go from Proton Mail to another email service, it would not be nearly as big of a hassle. Similarly, I can switch kind of um, cloud services very, very easily. So mm-hmm. kind of now I have a lot more freedom than I did before. And so it's powerful to know like I can easily change. I'm not stuck with any of these right. services. I'm, I'm still testing new ones. I'm still looking for new alternatives. I can kind of explore and kind of play with different technologies, which reminds me of like the internet when I first joined in the early 2000s when I was like always trying different services. I feel kind of regained that little spirit of exploration online. Do you think you could go even further at some point? Like, would you be able to avoid anything hosted by Google? Or you mentioned that you weren't trying to block Google from coming to you. I mean, do you think you could ever sustainably do that? I don't know. I, Probably not. Um, one mm-hmm. one funny complaint I get from people is like they're surprised that my name still shows up on Google. Huh. They're like, "You quit Google, but you can still Google you. I can still Google <laughs> your website." I guess there is a way I could like take myself off Google search if I really wanted mm-hmm. to, but then I would really be like cutting myself off from right. everything. So it's not really that's not really feasible. I think there's always going to be some relationship I have to have with Google as long as they are in this position of being dominating ninety percent of search and kind of controlling so much of traffic flows online and mm-hmm. mobile. Yeah, I don't know what would, the, would be the next step. I think I've gone as far as I can at this stage. I think what ha- will have to change in the future for me to go further is kind of the state of technology and regulations. And like if there's new alternatives or if new things happen with blockchain that allow for a different way for me to experience and kind of use 
and communicate, maybe I would be willing to try that out. But I think at this stage, I'm happy with where I am. And I've, I've gone as far as I think is feasibly possible for someone that's not a coder or a programmer. Is there a Google service that you miss the most that, you know, if you could just use again, it would make your life so much easier? Yeah, it goes back to Calendar. I think Calendar, I remember when it came out, um, it really like made everything so much easier in terms of just to be organized. And it was the first like multifunction calendar tool I'd ever encountered. One thing I definitely miss is like being able to access public calendars for things like holidays or football games or other types of events that you can just quickly put in, pull into your calendar. So ca I think the calendar function I, I still miss and I being able to easily send invites, being able to easily accept invites or be able to go to an event ride or meet up and immediately have that show up on your calendar. I do miss that sometimes. Like I think Google makes good products. Like I never my my intention of quitting was never to say that they're they're a bad company and they're that they're making bad products. It was that they have too much control and too much power and I wanted to quit because I didn't have a choice to quit. Right. So I mean, do you think you'll be able to do this long term? Like five years from now, do you think you'll still not be using Google? Is it getting exhausting at all and you just want to go back or do you think this is something you could just do indefinitely? I I've not considered even once going back since I quit. Like I've I've been I've been very happy. I mean, sometimes I miss certain functionality, but overall, like I'm ha very happy to be in control of my data and to not be part of that ecosystem anymore. So for for, the, for at least the time being, I don't see myself going back. But I don't know. The I think things are going to be really really different in five years in mm -hmm. terms of technology. So it's it's really it's going to depend on how things evolve and how things change over the next few years. I'm I'm interested to see where we'll be, where this discussion will be in like one or two years. Like, what will you think of Google then? What will be the state of privacy and what will be the state of big tech in the future? It's, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting discussions to come in the next few years about how we kind of, how we regulate these companies. And I also think it's interesting that there are a lot of interesting alternatives coming out and people working on alternatives. I think there's more search engines now than there were a year ago. There's more alternative email, secure email tools in a year ago. So there are, there is like a burgeoning space for people who are interested in privacy and secure alternatives and Google alternatives. Yeah, I don't know what the future is going to bring, but I feel more optimistic now than I did a year ago. Do you think you could eventually quit some or all of the major platforms? Like, would you ever consider abstaining from Amazon or Apple or anything like that? Yeah, I, Apple is easy because I'm not, I don't have Apple products to abstain from. I recall in, uh, in that article by Kashmir Hill about how she also tried to quit Amazon Web Services. And I remember that being a super interesting part because it sounded like that was actually the most difficult one because Amazon actually is a lot of traffic is hosted on Amazon servers across the internet. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't use Amazon very much as a platform to buy stuff, but I'm probably using mm -hmm. Amazon Web Services all the time and I don't even realize it. So right. that seems to me like another level of being disconnecting. I've been trying to quit using WhatsApp for a, couple, for a while. It's just, it's more challenging to me because I would actually lose contact with friends and it would be harder to do work in certain countries if I quit WhatsApp. So it's been tougher because there, there isn't really an alternative in some places like India or Indonesia where people even send press releases on WhatsApp and not email. Oh, wow. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm considering, like slowly considering which ones I don't want to use, which ones I still want to use. It's a constant trade-off between privacy and security and data integrity. Nathan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to take one final quick break, and then Shannon Paulus will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week.
Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank member FDIC or as a statement credit. Terms and more at applecard.com. Okay, now it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me now is my colleague Shannon Paulus, who will be hosting the show next week. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Aaron. So my tab this week is a cover story in Wired titled uh, The Telltale Heart, which is a fitting Edgar Allan Poe reference. Um, the piece follows the investigation into the murder of a 67-year-old woman in California. Police eventually arrested her 90-year-old stepfather using evidence they gathered from a neighbor's ring surveillance camera and the victim's Fitbit. So basically what they found was that the stepdad's car was in the victim's driveway for around 20 minutes. And within that period, the victim's Fitbit recorded that her heart rate had accelerated and then dropped to zero, which indicates that there was maybe some sort of struggle and then she was killed. Fitbit also said that she stopped moving from that time until her body was found. So the piece sort of examines the reliability of using a Fitbit for a murder investigation. These kind of devices can falsely record heart rates and then sometimes classify like piano playing, for example, as strenuous exercise. So it's not really (laughs) meant to be a a tool for criminal investigations. But then again, they should be able to track a, a zero heartbeat pretty easily. So the whole thing is just a really interesting look into how these Internet of Things devices are becoming crucial to police work and sort of the complications that are going to arise around that. That's so creepy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My first instinct is that, you know, maybe I should get a Fitbit if I'm <laughs> paranoid about going somewhere alone. But it's just a weird reminder that there can be upsides, I guess, to surveillance. Would you call this an upside? I guess if it helps you find a killer, that's an upside. Yeah, so uh, the complicated thing about this case is that um, the the man accused of the murder actually passed away before they could go to trial, so... I think it's tough to say just how reliable a the Fitbit was, and then if it was reliable, um, whether that I guess quote unquote surveillance is uh, appropriate. I guess it's worth noting though that the the Fitbit was on the victim rather than on the suspect himself. So I think that kind of changes the equation a little bit. How do you think that changes the equation? Yeah, so I feel like in surveillance discussions, it's usually we're usually talking about the privacy of the the accused. That's kind of how the the constitution is set up. It's we're looking at the rights of people who could be imprisoned. Yeah, of course, victim privacy is important, but I feel like in these conversations, it's usually focused on the the perpetrator or the accused. And were they able to use the Fitbit evidence in court, or was the conclusion that this just isn't a reliable enough device? for this purpose. Yeah, so the judge allowed it. I mean, this has been used as evidence before in previous cases, and they even considered using Fitbit data to try to track down Jamal Khashoggi when he was um, when he went missing. So it, it is becoming a, a more popular method of these sorts of crimes and uh, disappearances. It's so creepy. You just think of like a Fitbit as like a fun sort of happy piece of technology that's supposed to like help you get your step count in Mm -hmm. and to have that help a murder case be solved is sort of incongruous with the general gestalt of the Fitbit. Right, exactly. And, you know, if it's supposed to be for fitness, it it does raise questions about whether 
we can really reliably use this as a method of, uh, you know, investigating crimes. Yeah, I, I think in the future we'll, we'll be running into this a lot more and uh, we'll have to sort out how exactly we want to use this in the courts. So uh, what's your tab for this week? My tab is Who Would I Be Without Instagram? An Investigation. It's by Tavi Jevonson, um, who for the uninitiated was a star preteen fashion blogger turned the founding editor-in-chief of Rookie, which is a publication for smart teens and smart personal essays and kind of a internet response to teen magazines uh, and the content about weight loss and boys that is usually aimed at girls. And Rookie was really successful culturally, but in this essay, uh, Tavi reveals that, or I learned for the first time at least, that she had never been taking a salary from Rookie including when uh, she was editing the magazine in her late teens and early 20s. And during that time, she was doing some sponsored posts for a fancy apartment building that she lived in and, you know, generally trying to make some money as an influencer in addition to being an actor. And she grapples with using her face to make money in this essay. And I found it very good and well-written, but also very frustrating because here's this woman who is this star creator and star editor and star writer. And still, Instagram is what allowed her to pay her bills. And, like, very specifically, like, using her face and kind of her, like, sensibility for luxury and all these kind of traditional trappings of success. And there's one point in the piece where she ends up kind of quitting Instagram and instead has a personal assistant look at Instagram for her and write down all of the comments that, you know, might be constructive and useful. And she sends this woman photos and captions to post. And it just made me think that, you know, 10 years from now, rich people are going to have other people deal with their social media feeds. And then everybody in the middle tier is going to have to be out there experiencing the psychological damage. And maybe that's exactly what's happening right now. And we just haven't totally realized it. Yeah, I, I noticed that you, I think, mentioned on Slack yesterday that this made you kind of think about your own career as a writer and um, <laughs> kind of questioning how... Uh, what it means to be like a public figure nowadays. Yep. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I just feel like there's, it made me very hyper aware that there's kind of a ceiling with where creative work in general can get you. At one point she mentions, you know, she was living in this apartment building that was really fancy and doing SpawnCon for them and doing SpawnCon for other brands, I think. And that one sponsored Instagram, no, it wasn't an Instagram post, sorry, one day like doing a fashion photo shoot where she was basically a model, working as a model for one day, paid more than doing like a week's worth of independent theater productions. Some some like absurd number of plays that she was in combined like did not total the, the pay from being a model. And that was just a really stark reminder for my own career. As a creative person <laughs> who does not have the ability nor really wishes to have the ability to earn a primary source of income by posting pictures of my apartment building's roof on Instagram. Yeah, I only skimmed this piece, but do you get the sense that a lot of writers and actors are now doing SpawnCon to subsidize their their income? Or I think it's probably just the more famous people. I don't have the sense that like folks at Slate certainly are like, (laughs) you know, chilling for Doritos on the side. In fact, I think that would be not allowed. But I think, you know, she compared, she was trying to figure out a way for Rookie, her magazine, to survive financially. And people kept telling her, you know, 
you have to be the face of rookie in the way that like Oprah is the face of Oprah. Mm. So I think that this way forward of having publication survive on the basis of like a celebrity, charismatic, beautiful personality at the forefront. I th- I think that could end up affecting us all a little bit more than we want it to in the future. Right. Yeah. It seems like Instagram could kind of uh, encourage that model of the the charismatic editor who makes money off of SpawnCon. Here you say it now, though. I almost think that like it, because that is the old model of magazines. Like Anna Winter has long been the. You hear about like the old days of magazines where editors like. <laughs> you know, took cabs upstate after work and expensed it and went out to fancy dinners and had people cut their hair at work. And it was all about, like, looking beautiful. Um, And Instagram sort of slots into that model. I guess it's just, for whatever reason, it is happening now in this way, and it sucks. This was supposed to be the fun tab. (laughs) Right, exactly. All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron T. Mack. Thanks again to our guest, Nathan Coca, And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Justin D. Wright. Thanks also to Rosemary Belson, who engineered for us in D.C. We'll see you next week. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.